Good morning. All right. There are, go ahead and make it to your seats. Maybe close those back doors. You got an ADD pastor. I need a, I need some thing to concentrate here. Um, there are certain scenes in movies that become iconic and they might not even be a long scene. It could be just three or four or five seconds long. But by iconic, I mean the scene becomes an emblem of the whole movie. So you see that scene and you think of the whole film and even people who have never seen the movie recognize like that scene and, and recognize what film it's attached to. So let me give you an example. Uh, the blowing up of the Death Star in Star Wars is an iconic scene, right? It, it, I don't know how long it lasts, but it's just a few seconds. The Death Star blows up and people know. They just go like, oh, that's Star Wars. Right now, it, that's not Star Wars. That's like five seconds of Star Wars, but it has become an emblem of the whole movie. And even people who have never seen Star Wars or haven't seen it for 30 years, they see that and they recognize it and they go, hey, that's Star Wars. And it's with that way with a lot of movies. There's that part in Titanic where Jack and Rose are at the front of the ship and Rose puts out her arms and she says, I'm flying, Jack, I'm flying. And that scene became like the scene from the movie. Like people, it's like you, you can picture the whole movie when you see that. And people who have not ever seen Titanic no, like if they saw that scene, they would go like, oh yeah, that's the scene from Titanic. Well, it's not the scene from Titanic. There's a hundred other scenes, but somehow that became the scene from Titanic. And so I bring all this up because if the life of Paul were made into a successful Hollywood film, I think there are a few scenes in it that would become iconic. They would be the part that everybody remembers and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that movie. Um, and I say, if it were a successful Hollywood film, because I realize there are some of you that are going to say like, well, Mario, didn't you know that this has been made into a movie? And I wanted to let you know, I, I'm aware, I Googled and I found out. Um, they have made some Apostle Paul movies. They made one in 1981. They made one in 2013. They made one in 2018. Um, some of them had decent or even like good actors in them. The one in uh, 2018 had Jim Caviezel as the guy who played Luke. The one in 1981 had Anthony Hopkins as the Apostle Paul. This was back before he was famous, but Anthony Hopkins was the Apostle Paul, I think back before he was a celebrity. Um, and so there have been movies made of the life of Paul, but I'm not really talking about any of those movies. I'm saying if the life of Paul were given the treatment that Lord of the Rings got <laughs> or that the Harry Potter movies got, like serious resources poured into it, special effects, commercials and marketing where everybody's familiar with it. I think what would have happened is, first of all, I think the most iconic scene would be Jesus appearing in the blinding light and Paul falling off his horse, right? Do you agree that would, become like a, that would become an iconic scene? And it's funny because I, I, him falling off a horse is how I picture it. Is that how you guys picture it too? Yeah, that he's good. so I, I looked up the story. You don't picture it that way? I looked it up. Um, and, and Acts chapter eight, where Paul, like the conversion story of Paul, I looked it up and there's no horse in there. And then I looked up um, Acts uh, 22 and 26, where these are two other places where Paul tells the story of Jesus appearing to him. And there's no horses in any of those counts either. Like nowhere where it talks about like the Lord appearing to Paul that day, there's not a horse in any of those accounts, um, which is a shame because I'm not changing how I picture it. Um, <laughs> but honestly, it could, be, it could be that he was just walking and the light was so blinding, he just fell to his fell to the ground from standing position. That could be what happened. But if it's a movie, there's no way they're doing that. If it's a movie, there's gonna be a horse. And, and the scene is gonna have the horse up on its hind legs with two legs up and with its like horse head moving away from the light. And there are these beams of light that are gonna be shooting past the horse. And that would become like the scene, that would be the movie poster, wouldn't it? That would be the thing that you click on in order to watch it on Netflix. So that would be, I think, the most iconic scene. And then I think the second most memorable thing in the movie would be the passage that I'm about to read to you today. 
Okay, so I think there's gonna, there's gonna be the horse scene that they use as the movie poster. And then I think the most memorable scene after that would be what I'm about to read to you. It's Acts chapter 27. If this were a movie, this passage that I'm about to read to you is the action sequence that comes at the very end. Okay, this is a really common um, Hollywood f- formula that you have your whole movie and it's building toward whatever it is. And then there's this final action scene that takes place. Okay, I mean, not every movie, but good movies, have, have this final action scene, you know, romance. Okay, you got like, you know, a really, there's a really good action scene and usually it's well choreographed and usually there's, um, you know, like it's in a very unusual location, you know, they're in this warehouse or they're wherever they are. But anyway, there's the final action scene and then after it's done, there's a few more minutes and then the movie ends, the credits roll shortly after that. This would be that scene. If this were a movie, this is so intense, what I'm about to read to you. It's one of those scenes that if it were made into a movie, people would watch it and then 20 years later, when they thought back about it, when they thought, hey, have you ever seen that movie, The Life of Paul? They would, they would remember the horse and they would remember this scene. The one, that's the one where Paul's on the boat in the storm. Yeah, that one, okay? So I'm not trying to overhype it. I'm just preparing you to hear about one of the most dramatic moments in Paul's life story. Okay, Acts chapter 27. I'm gonna read the whole thing to you. It starts in verse one. All of the Bible chapters start in verse one. Very convenient that way. Um, It starts in verse one. It goes all the way to verse 44. I'm gonna read all 44 verses. If you have your Bible with you, I would encourage you to read along. If you don't, um, maybe close your eyes and pretend it's an old-timey radio drama because this is very, very interesting. So Acts 27, starting in verse one. Here's our passage for this morning. When it was decided that we were to sail to Italy, They handed over Paul and some of the other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. So when we had boarded a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and allowed him to go to his friends to receive their care. When he had put out to sea from there, we sailed along the northern coast of Cyprus because the winds were against us. After sailing through the open sea off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we reached Myra in Lycia. There was, uh, sorry, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Sailing slowly for many days, we came with difficulty as far as Nidus. Since the wind did not allow us to approach it, we sailed off the south side of Crete, off Salmone. With yet more difficulty, we sailed along the coast and came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. By now, much time had passed and the voyage was already dangerous. Since the fast was already over, Paul gave his advice and told them, men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward damage and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided to set sail from there, hoping somehow to reach Phoenix, a harbor on Crete, open to the southwest and northwest and to winter there. When a gentle south wind sprang up, they thought they had achieved their purpose. (sighs) They weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But not long afterward, a fierce wind called the Northeaster rushed down from the island. Since the ship was caught and was unable to head into the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. After running under the shelter of a little island called Cotta, we were barely able to get control of the skiff. This is like the lifeboat. After hoisting it up, they used ropes and tackle and girded the ship. 
Then fearing they would run aground on the Syrtes, they lowered the drift anchor, and in this way they were driven along. Because they were be we were being severely battered by the storm, they began to jettison the cargo the next day. On the third day, they threw the ship's gear overboard with their own hands. For many days, neither sun nor stars appeared, and the severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. Since many were going without food, Paul stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. For this night, an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me and said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and look, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, take courage, men, because I believe God that it will be just the way it was told to me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. When the 14th night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and in the middle of the night, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took a sounding and found it to be 120 feet deep. And they sailed a little farther and sounded again and found it to be 90 feet deep. This would be like with a long rope with a weight on the end of it. They, <clears throat> then, fearing we might run aground in some rocky place, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut the ropes holding the skiff and let it drop away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for this has to do with your survival, since none of you will lose a hair from your head. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of all of them. And when he broke it, he began to eat. They all became encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After casting off the anchors, they let them in the sea and at the same time loosening the ropes that held the rudders, they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim away and escape. But the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and to get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. And in this way, everyone safely reached the shore. So there's gonna be a map that comes up on the screen. This map is gonna show you geographically what, you just were, what was just described for you uh, verbally. Paul has been in prison here in Caesarea. He's getting uh, transferred to Rome. That's the goal. And so he's on a ship and they start traveling up this way. Um, I think somewhere along here is where it becomes a little bit difficult, but starting about here is where it really becomes difficult. Um, this is the place where they board an Alexandrian ship that was headed for Italy, and they have some difficulty, and they end up here on Crete. And at that point is the point where Paul gives his now famous warning. We should not go any further. This is not going to go good. We might all die. They do not listen to him, and they go out here, and the storm takes them. I mean, this line is straight, but I doubt that's the way the boat really went. Like, I mean, it was probably crazy town, and then they land over here. Um, on, a, on an island called Malta. And so that's the, the story that I just read to you. There's a guy named James Smith who, um, I think he was a Scottish man. Uh, he's a scholar and a sailor. 
And he wrote a book about this. He wrote a book about Acts chapter 27, specifically like Luke's account of this story. Um, It was back in the 1800s, so this is a long time ago. And he was a yachtsman, and I believe he was a yachtsman in this particular section of the Mediterranean. Like he was was aware of this area where where the storm took place. So he's a sailor, and he writes a book called, uh, the title was something like The Shipwreck of St. Paul. Um, And I wanted to read to you a quote that I found from that book. He says this, he says, no sailor, and he's talking about the way this account is written here in Acts 27. He says, no sailor would have written in a style so little like that of a sailor. And no man, not a sailor, could have written a narrative of a sea voyage so consistent in all its parts, unless from actual observation which I thought was interesting. He's saying, you read this and you go, wow, that's what happened. But when he reads the account, he says, this, this is not written like, for, like it's written from the point of view of someone who's a sailor, okay? This, this person didn't know much about sailing and boating as he wrote down what happened. He said, but there's no way this is some guy that's just a non-sailor making it up. Like if it happened this way, this is the way it would have happened. This is only if someone that went through this would have written it this way. So what happened? We just read it. Who did it happen to? Um, there are four people in this story that we know by name. Okay, we know Paul. He's who the whole series has been about. He's our main character. So we know Paul by name. Uh, there's a guy named Julius who is mentioned by name. Julius is mentioned in verse one. And he is the warden who is in charge of all the prisoners that are being transferred from Caesarea up to Rome. So he's the warden in charge of all of the, the other guards that are in charge of the prisoners that are being transported. So we got Paul, we got Julius. There's a guy on board named Aristarchus. We know that because verse two says there was a guy on board named Aristarchus. Aristarchus was a friend of Paul's. He was a traveling companion, fellow missionary. He's mentioned earlier in the book of Acts. He's mentioned in other, Bible, um, other books of the Bible. And so it seems like somehow Paul was able to make this journey with friends. I don't know if they got arrested at the same time he did or if they were just allowed to accompany him as he went, but he was able to have friends with him because Aristarchus was with him. And I say friends, plural, because there's one other friend that's with him that we know. Anybody wanna guess who it is? Yeah, very good, Luke. We can tell that Luke is there. Now, um, Aristarchus' name is right there in the text. So is Julius and so is Paul. Luke's name is not in our text. However, Luke is in there in the pronouns. If you look at verse two, you'll see where Luke is. Look at verse two. He says, so when, what's the word? When we had boarded a ship of Adramantium. Later on, um, he says, Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica was with us, right? He doesn't say Aristarchus was with them. He doesn't say when they boarded the ship. He doesn't say when they put out to sea. If you read through the story, you can tell it is written from the first person's perspective. Luke is all over this. Luke was on that boat and he's telling the story of what he went through. So Julius is the warden in charge. Paul's there and he's got Aristarchus and Luke with him. So we know those four guys are there. There's two other people on the ship that we're aware of. And that is the captain of the ship is there. Okay. And that would make sense. You'd imagine the ship would have a captain. And the owner of the ship is also on board, okay? That is something I would not have imagined, but apparently it's true. The owner is mentioned in verse 11, okay? So it's a big old ship. I'm guessing there's a rich guy. We don't know his name, but there's an owner and there he is on board. So we know those six people are on board. In addition to those six people, there are 270 other people on board because the total passenger count was 276. Those other 270 people are made up of prisoners who are being transferred to Rome. Uh, guards that are guarding those prisoners along the way. And there's a bunch of people that are just regular sailors on this ship because it was a cargo ship that was headed to Rome. Um, You can notice that in verse six. Verse six says that the centurion, um, where is it here? It says that the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. So you can tell by the way this is written, this ship was not specifically commissioned 
to transport prisoners. This, this is not like a ship and there's all these little cells and there they are holding onto the bars. Like this was a ship that was already heading to Italy because it was transporting cargo there. And the centurion got him and his guys onto the ship that was already headed that way. So that's, that's who's on the ship, those 276 people. Now I wanna go through the story and point out some highlights. First highlight I wanna point out is verse 10. Verse 10, they're in Crete and Paul gives his warning. And he says, men, I can see that this voyage is headed toward damage and heavy loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. We should not go. It is too dangerous. We're gonna die. Now I gotta remember at this point of the story, the angel has not visited Paul and told him he's gonna be okay. Okay, so when he says like, we're gonna all die. I don't think he's being dramatic here. Like God had just told him he wasn't gonna die and he doesn't believe. Like this is before the angel shows up. So he's just saying like, these are the conditions under which people who go out to sea die, all right? And so I think we shouldn't do it. Now, do they listen to him? No, they do not, okay? Now, as we read this passage, all these years later in the Bible, having seen how the story ends and having the benefit of reading it from Luke's point of view, it's very easy for us to tell that they were making a mistake, right? When it says the centurion paid attention to the captain and the owner of the ship rather than to what Paul said. I mean, if this was a movie, like we'd be watching it and the music would be going, you know, bah, bah, bah. And like, we'd know like, oh, they just did a dumb thing. But that's not what it would have been like in real life, right? Like when, when this was happening, like we could look at the story, like if, like if we were watching it in a movie, I think we could look at this and be like, oh, come on, Julius, what's your problem? Why in the world would you listen to the captain of the ship and the owner of the ship rather than Paul? Goodness gracious, those guys don't even have names, Okay, Paul is the hero of the story. Julius, don't you know he's the hero of the story? And of course the answer is, no, Julius doesn't know he's the hero of the story. He's one of many prisoners on the ship and the captain and the owner did have names. We just don't know them. And so I read this just to, I just want to point out to you as read the, we read this, we can be like, oh, look how stupid they were. But you just need to know it probably was not as obvious as it was happening in real time. So they go when they should not go and they are in the middle of the storm. It's a terrible storm. Look at verse 20. This will be the second highlight I point out to you. Verse 20 says, for many days, neither sun nor stars appeared and the severe storm kept raging, right? You can picture this. I mean, we Florida, we live in hurricane state, right? That it's just, the storm just goes on and on for days. They don't see the sun. It looks like nighttime for days. They don't see the sun or the stars. The severe storm kept raging. Finally, all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. Now, when he says that they couldn't see the sun or the stars for days, um, this is not a comment about how they were lacking beautiful scenery, okay? The sun and the stars were the way they would navigate the ship, right? Like that's, the sun and the stars is the way they knew whether they were facing east or west or north or south. And they can't see the sun and they can't see the stars and they don't know where they are. And so when it says neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, that's Luke's way, I think, of saying, we didn't have a clue where we were. Days and days and days, the waves moved our ship all around the ocean. There got to a point where we looked around and we could see no land anywhere. We're just out in the middle of the ocean. Where were we? God only knows. There was no sun. There were no stars for days. Nobody knew where we were. I just want you to picture how scary that would be. I mean, have you ever been in a boat and you had no clue where you were? Because they're out in the middle of this boat. They do not know. And this is not just, um, I'm in a boat and I have no clue where I am. This is a boat. Look at verse 17. This is interesting to me if I'm understanding this correctly. Verse 17 says, after they hoisted it up, it being the lifeboat, they used ropes and tackle 
and girded the ship. So I looked into this and it seems like what this means is they took ropes and they wrapped it around parts of the ship. I don't know if this was the, you know, the bow or the stern or the deck or what it may be, but what you can picture is happening here. And imagine you're one of the people that's on the ship and you're watching like the crew people do this. You got ropes and there's, so there's, the ship's made of wood. It's made of collections of boards, right? And there are now ropes that are being brought out and tied around collections of boards to do what? To hold them together. So imagine you're on a ship and you haven't seen the sun for days. You have no clue where you are. And the people in charge are wrapping up the boat in ropes so that it doesn't break apart. Can you imagine how nervous you would be? And then keep in mind, verse 43 implies there were people on the ship that didn't know how to swim. I say it implies because it talks about the people that did know how to swim as if it wasn't all of them. So I want you to picture you're that guy. Picture you do not know how to swim. You're in God only knows in the middle of nowhere with a ship that the professional people all think might break into pieces if they don't rope it down. And this is way before there was a Coast Guard. You need to understand it was no one's job to help them. So of course, when you get to verse 20, it ends with the words, finally all hope that we would be saved was disappearing. I'm imagining there would have been at least some men on that ship that they were just waiting around to die. Like they knew like, we're not gonna get out of this. We don't know where we are. There's no one coming to rescue us. This thing's going to fall apart into a bunch of pieces. It's over. I don't know if I'm gonna die of starvation or I'm gonna drown or be eaten by a shark. I don't know how it's gonna be over, but it's just, it's just a matter of time before it's all done. And the story says some of them were not eating. Yeah, that makes sense. You got a bunch of people just waiting to die. And then you get to verse 21 and Paul gives them a big fat, I told you so. Look at verse 21. Paul stood up among them and said, you men should have followed my advice not to sail from Crete and sustain this damage and loss. Now that certainly qualifies as an I told you so, but I don't think it's simply an I told you so. I think he has a reason for bringing it up. I don't think he is just saying, hey, I would like for all of us to think about how I was right as we die, okay? <laughs> That's not what it is. He is saying it in order to say, listen to me this time, right? You didn't listen to me last time. And you might be tempted to not listen to me this time. But if you can just remember, I was the guy that you should have listened to last time. So please listen to me this time. And then he gives them a message. Paul said that he was visited by an angel. In verse 23, it's recorded. He's visited by an angel and he was given a message from God, the content of which is in verse 24. And I'm gonna to read to you. This is what Paul says the angel said to him. Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and look, God has graciously given you all those who are sailing with you. An angel appeared and said, don't be afraid. This would be, at a, this would be a time where it'd be very logical to be afraid. Probably he's surrounded by 275 afraid people. And the angel says, don't be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. Like you, you remember this ship was supposed to go to Rome? Like we're getting you to Rome. God is gonna make sure you end up in Rome. You're gonna stand before Caesar and God has done, he's gone and, and the extra mile. He says, you must stand before Caesar and look, God has graciously given you all of those who are sailing with you. He's saying, you need to be rescued. You need to make it to Rome. But God has decided to rescue every single other person on the ship. Not, this message isn't just you're gonna make it. The message is every single one of you is gonna make it out of this. So then Paul goes to the rest of the crew and says, I just found out every single one of us is making it out of this. And he encourages them with this message and he comforts them. Now, I don't know if they believed him at first. I don't know if they even did anything about it at first because if you go back and reread the account, it sure looks like several more days go by 
before the crew does anything with Paul's words, right? That the story just goes on. But eventually, Paul rallies them all to eat in order to gain strength, and he rallies them all to um, crash the ship into a sandbar. And so they all cooperate together and they do it. There's also some smaller stories within this story that you noticed. Um, there, there's this part where the crew members think they're close enough to land that they, jump, they can jump into the lifeboat and just ditch everybody else behind. And so they're like, let's do this. And Paul sees that that's what's happening. He goes, hey, no, we don't all get saved if they don't stay behind. And so they cut that lifeboat away and they all stayed on the ship together. And then another story that's within a story, and it's only one sentence in this passage, but it must have taken place over the course of at least several minutes, if not hours. And that is in verse 42, it says the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, right? So, I mean, it didn't take me very long to say the words, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. But in real life, like some soldiers had to walk up to some other soldiers and go, hey, what are you gonna do about this? Because if we, if we land this thing somewhere, especially if we crash it onto some beach somewhere, like prisoners are gonna get away. And this is the Roman empire, right? Like we could get killed if we have prisoners that get away. I think we should kill all the prisoners to guarantee that we have no runaway prisoners as part of our record. And I guess the other, the other uh, guards said, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, but just before a big crash, let's go ahead and make sure we kill all of them. And then Julius, the one who's in charge of all the guards, stops them because he wants to save Paul's life. And then verse 44, this is the way the story ends. The rest were to follow, some on planks, some on debris from the ship. And then this is the final sentence of the story. I love it. In this way, everyone safely reached the shore. Okay. Why did Luke include this story in his account of the early church? Why did he put this in there? And I'm gonna give you more than one reason because I think there's more than one reason. Um, first thing I wrote down is this. In answering why did Luke include this story, I wrote down because it happened, okay? I think one reason that Luke wrote this story the way he did is because it happened. Luke is chronicling how Paul got to Rome. And this is how he got to Rome like by way of a ship and a shipwreck and all the stuff that's gonna happen if you continue to come to church here. Actually, it, it already happened. You can find out whether you come to church here or not. You just keep reading. But, but he gets to Rome and this is the way he got to Rome. So Luke records this story because it happened. However, that's almost not a good enough reason because there's lots of things that happened to Paul that Luke doesn't record. If you read the letters of Paul, you find out there are tons of things that happened in Paul's life that Luke doesn't tell us about. And... There are things that Luke tells us about, but he doesn't give us very many details, certainly not as many details that are in this chapter. There are lots of times where Luke tells Paul's story and he just says, Paul went from this city to this city. And you look on a map and you go like, whoa, that was mild. I would have taken days to travel from this city to this city, which means stuff happened. He had conversations with people. Probably some of those conversations were significant. He had to pitch a tent and spend the night somewhere. They had to build a fire. They had to roast the chicken or whatever it is. Like a bunch of stuff happened. And Luke just says he went to this city and doesn't give us any details. And, and so the question is, even if this happened, why doesn't Luke just say, Paul sailed to Rome? Why does he give us so much detail of this particular two-week period of his life? And here's my guess. My guess that there's so much detail because this was one of the most remarkable things that ever happened to Luke. He was there for the story. He's not just talking about some time when Paul went from one city to city. He's talking about his own near-death experience, right? I mean, the guy almost died. He was there in the ship, like clenching his teeth and his stomach was all in knots for 14 days in a row thinking he's gonna die. It makes sense that he tells the whole story. You would too. But there's a third reason that I think Luke includes this story because we have to remember God is behind the writing of scripture. It's not just Luke writing whatever he wants to write. Like God makes sure that what he wants in his word is in his word. And I think God is teaching us something here. 
God is showing us that he, God, is involved in his world. This is not a God-free story. I mean, do you notice that about it? This is not like the perfect storm. This is not just a story about a bunch of people a long time ago that got into a storm and they shipwrecked. Like in the middle of the story, a messenger from God comes down and speaks to one of the passengers on the ship. The messenger from God that speaks to one of the passengers on the ship makes a prediction of what's going to happen over the next few days. And the story ends with exactly what God said would happen, happening. So it's not a God-free story. This is a story of how God is involved in his world, both in the good things and in the bad things making things happen and keeping his promises. That in particular, I think, is kind of the point of this story. God keeps his promises. I think this is most obvious by just comparing verse 24 with verse 44. So we're gonna put them both up on the screen at the same time. This first verse is the angel talking. The angel says, don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And look, God has graciously given you, now what's the word after you? All those who are sailing with you. The angel says, God, not just God's gonna rescue you, God is going to rescue all 276 of you. That's the promise. You're all going to make it out of this. Now, how does Luke end the story when he says, okay, and then this is what happened. Look at verse 44. The rest were to follow, some on planks, some on debris from the ship, and in this way, now what's the word? Everyone safely reached the shore. I looked it up in Greek, and the word everyone there is actually translated from the same exact word that's translated all here. In other words, in our English translation, they took a word that's in Greek and for some reason translated it differently in two places. The word is translated into the English word all here and it's translated into the English word everyone here. But in the original, the way Luke wrote it, Luke said that the angel said, all of those who are sailing with you, God has given you. God's going to rescue all. And then the way Luke ends the story is by saying in this way, all safely reached the shore. Exactly what God's messenger said would happen, happened. God keeps his promises. And in order for God to keep his promises, some things had to happen. It seems to me that in order for God to to make this promise and then make sure that it happens, okay? In order for God to keep his promises, not only did the ocean currents have to cooperate and the winds had to cooperate with God's plan, right? Because the boat needed to like hit a particular sandbar on a particular island and not go a little bit too far this way or a little bit too far this way, right? So the, the winds and the waves had to cooperate in order for God's promise to take place, but not just nature had to be involved. There are humans in this story who had to cooperate in order for God's promise to be fulfilled. Do you realize that? It wasn't just wind and waves. Do you remember the part of the story where the guards said they were gonna kill Paul? So, so you, you don't just have the fact that there's a storm that's trying to kill Paul. There are humans on the ship that are trying to kill him, right? They're wanting to kill him, not just him, all the prisoners. They wanna kill all the prisoners. So for God's word to come true, not only did the ocean and the wind have to cooperate, but there are human beings like Julius the centurion who had to make a particular decision and be successful in implementing it. Because when the angel said to Paul, you're gonna make it to Rome, right? I th- Paul probably would have taken that as like, oh, I'm gonna survive this storm. But obviously what's included by the time we get to the end is we realize the angel saying, no, you're gonna, f- you're gonna survive this storm and you're gonna survive the murder attempt that you don't know is coming. You're gonna survive all of that. God is in control and he's faithful to his promises. So what does this mean for us? I wanna draw out three principles from this passage. There could be more. In fact, I had four originally and I crossed one out for time. But let me go ahead and give you three. Here's number one, which was originally number two, but you don't need to know that. All right. (laughs) 
Number one, our faith in God can affect other people. Okay, our faith in God can affect other people. Or another way of saying this is God can save a bunch of people for the sake of one. Do you notice that that's what happens in this story? God rescues Paul. And it's, it's interesting, when it comes to the murder plot, the, all of the prisoners are rescued just for the sake of Paul. Remember that part where it said it? But then also, like, everybody on the ship is rescued. And, it, and based on what the angel says, it sure sounds like everyone on the ship was rescued for Paul's sake. When the angel shows up, he says, this is it, he says, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. You have to be rescued from this. You must stand before Caesar. And God has graciously given you all the other people too. But the angel does not show up and say, okay, listen, there's 276 things God needs to do, all right? And he needs these 276 people. Does that make sense? Like the angel doesn't show up and go, hey, we got 276 problems to fix here. He says, no, Paul, you need to go to Rome. And God's gonna be nice and rescue everybody also. They don't need to go to Rome, but, but they're gonna get there anyway. They're all gonna get rescued. God can save a bunch of people for the sake of one. I just think that's such an interesting concept. And I like it. It's, it seems like it's the reverse of what happened in the book of Jonah. I don't know if you know very well the book of Jonah, but I, I love that book. It's in the Old Testament. And in the book of Jonah, there's a very similar story where they're actually, they're in the Mediterranean Sea. There's a big giant storm that hits. It threatens to break up the ship. But in that story, everybody is suffering because of one guy you know that story? Like there's only, as far as we know, there's only one person on the ship who's running from God, but everybody on the ship is suffering because of the one guy who's running from God, right? Like when God sends a storm to Jonah, he does not just have Jonah, like the storm doesn't just follow Jonah around wherever he goes, right? The whole ship is involved in this storm, even though Jonah's the one running from God. And I've, it's, I, I just, the principle there is very interesting because I've talked to my kids about it. And I've said like, this is life. This is what happens sometimes. We are connected to other people. Like we live in networks of people where we're connected to other people. And there are times when bad things will happen to you and it's not necessarily because you did anything wrong. It's just, they are in the same boat as you. Like you happen to be in the same boat as them. And some of the bad and the consequences of their decisions splashed onto you because you're in the same boat. That's life. We're connected people. And so it's just interesting because we see this is like the hat, like, I guess Jonah is like the evil twin of this story because that's very negative. Like, oh, look at all these bad things happening to all these people for the one. And then this story is the opposite of that. All of these people get rescued because Paul needs to go to Caesar. All right, number two, God still has his people even in the midst of a storm. Some of you need to hear this. God still has his people. They belong to him even in the midst of a storm. When Paul describes the God he serves on the ship, he's talking to these guys who don't, they're not Christians. They don't serve his God. So how does God, how does Paul describe his God? He says, well, an angel from, and this is what he says, the God I belong to and serve. The God I belong to and serve. Not the God I used to belong to back when things were going well, but obviously he's abandoned me because I'm in the middle of this storm. No, the God I belong to right now in the middle of this storm is the God that I serve. God had not lost track of Paul. God had not let go of Paul in the midst of his hardship. And I think that applies to you in principle. If you are someone who belongs to God, God does not let go of you in the midst of your hardship. Hebrews chapter 13 says that God will never leave us or forsake us. Some of you might be in the middle of a storm right now. You may be in the middle of a relational storm where it's just, you don't know how you will untangle this mess. 
it seems impossible. And this person's mad at this person. This person won't talk to this person. They won't forgive and they won't reconcile. And there's false accusations. We don't even know what actually happened. I mean, some of you and you go, I'm, and I can't help it. Like I'm in the middle of that. I'm on that boat, whether I like it or not. I'm in there in the midst of all that. And I just want you to know, yep, I believe you. I believe you're in the midst of it. And I just want you to know, God has not let you go in the middle of that. For some of you, it's not a relational storm. It's a financial storm. And you don't know what to do. And for some of you, it might be, it might be a financial storm that is not your fault. It may be one of those things where you're just on a, on a boat with someone else and you're suffering the consequences. And there may be some of you that it is your fault. And like, it is, it is the decisions that you made in the past that you are now having to deal with. And you're sitting there going like, I feel like I'm going to be poor forever. And I just want you to know, God has not let go of you in the middle of that. And for some of you, it's not a financial storm, it's a health storm. There's some part of your body that's not working right and it's starting to worry you and you've had to go to doctor visit after doctor visit. And it might be painful or in some cases it's not, the pain doesn't bother you as much as there's just the panic of I don't know what the future holds. And for some of you, it may not be you, it might be a loved one. And it almost seems like harder because you, you honestly, you would take whatever the problem is in their body and you'd take it into your own body if you could because you hate watching them suffer. And I just want you to know, God has not lost track of you. He has not let go of you in the middle of that. The presence of the storm is not an indicator of the absence of God. The angel shows up to Paul in this story and essentially says, you're gonna be okay, right? That's a paraphrase. Angel shows up and says, you're gonna be okay. You're gonna make it through this. And I want you to think about what happened after that, okay? The angel shows up and says, you're gonna be okay. And the story does not make it sound like once the angel said everything's gonna be fine, whoo, the sea stilled and the rain stopped and everything was fine. The angel was, showed up in a storm and left with the storm still going. You following that? The angel showed up and said, Paul, you're gonna be okay. And then the storm went on. According to the story, it seems to have gone on for several more days. How could that be? Because the presence of the storm is not an indicator of the absence of God. Anybody need to hear that? Number three, God keeps his promises. I had to make this the final point because I told you this is what I think Luke is saying in this chapter. And I would think it's like pastoral malpractice not to make his main point my main point. So God makes, God keeps his promises. In this case, Paul was promised that he would stand before Caesar. Now that's not what's been promised to you. God has not promised you will make it to Rome, right? What has God promised you? For those of you who belong to Jesus, God has promised you an eternity with him. He has promised you a judgment day where you are not condemned on that day. I mean, you can think of like the top five worst things you've done and then realize that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're gonna show up on judgment day and be not condemned for any of that. The undoing of the bad things in this life. He has promised a, a resurrected body and a new heaven and a new earth. He has promised that your current life right now matters, that the decisions that you are making right now matter. And he has promised that he will never leave you or forsake you. That is good news. 
There's a lady who sits right there in the first service and she came up to me after, this second, after the first service and told me this. And I was like, ooh, I'm putting that into the sermon. So I'm just gonna let you know, the sermon was supposed to end right here. I was supposed to be done and close in prayer, but I wanna, I wanna throw in this last little thing because this is what she said to me. She walked up to me after, this, after hearing this sermon and she said, the only difference between an adventure and a tragedy is the ending. Have you ever thought about that before? Every novel you've ever written, read, every movie you've ever watched. I mean, every novel you've ever written would fall under this too. Every single story you've seen, the difference between an adventure and a tragedy is the ending. And so because of sin in this world, because we've brought sin into this world, those are the only two options we've got. Like there is no comedy. There is no version of your life where just everything goes fine and then everything's fine forever. Like that's not a thing. The only two options we've got because of sin is just adventure, tragedy. That's all you get to pick from. That's all that's, that's, all that's available to you. And that's why it is so important that you trust in Jesus Christ for your eternity. Because you don't get to pick between good and bad. You get to pick between adventure and tragedy. And so we, we, we must trust Jesus because that's it. He, contr- he controls the ending. He actually controls every little bit along the way. After the storm that takes place in this story, um, the people wash up on an island called Malta. And if the Lord allows, we will get to that passage next week. Let's pray. God, I pray right now for people who don't know you and people who do. I pray for people who do not know you. I pray that today would be the day that their story turns from a tragedy to an adventure because they trust in you. And I, I don't even understand how that works because I realize, like I say they pick, but I realize like you, you are in control of these things. You are the person who comes into lives and pursues people and changes people's hearts. And so I ask you to save them, but I'm also very aware that the scripture talks about how we are supposed to cooperate. We are supposed to like place our faith in you. And so I pray for anybody in this room that doesn't know you. I pray that they would place their faith in you and that their story would go from tragedy to adventure. For those of us who already know you, oh, what a comfort. Thank you so much for being our God in the middle of the storm. Thank you that you continue to hold on to us and that we continue to belong to you in the middle of the storm. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me end with these good words from God's word. This is from the last chapter of Hebrews. It says, your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That is good news.